Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here and glad for the opportunity that we have to be able to praise our God in our worship. So I was told that this is going to be a short sermon. <laughs> I promise it'll be under five hours. Promise. <laughs> All right. So this morning, we are actually going to be talking about a subject matter that in one way is so familiar with us. Right? We're talking about a subject of baptism, and that is a an extremely um, trending discussion, by the way, amongst many denominations. I don't know if you knew that. There, there, a lot of denominations are discussing baptism all over again, and um, I find that very interesting and, and well pleased of, of hearing it. But there's going to be another way that we're going to look at the subject of baptism that I think and I hope will be very rich for us in this room. Now, I share that from the standpoint that Two weeks ago, based upon uh, the sermon that I had given um, or, and, and the Bible studies that we've been doing over the last couple of years, David made a, made a point, and I went to talk to him about it before the sermon today. He said, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these patterns that you're talking about, these biblical patterns that start off in uh, the book of Genesis and evolve and make their way into what we call the New Testament scriptures. And his words stuck with me, and I thought, you know, I wonder how true it, is it with this subject matter, and I pulled out the subject of baptism, and I thought, is that possible? So that was the hypothesis, right? And no sooner than I began really digging in, I could see it in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. You know, you think 30 years almost, uh, 30 years of being a Christian and almost 30 years of preaching, and you think by now I might have come across it, but never dawned on me. And I'm wanting to share that with you for a variety of reasons, which I'll share at the very end of the sermon. So this is entitled The Genesis of Baptism. Hopefully you get the play on words that we get to see. But I'm going to start off with this very concept of baptism. Because when we look at the subject matter, naturally we can start off very simply, right? There's a command in Scripture, right? So in a command form, as Jesus tells his disciples to go and, and make disciples, and then in Acts chapter 2, that's what Peter and the other apostles do. And people, upon having their hearts pricked in listening to the sermon that Peter gave, Peter's response to them was, repent, right? And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so it can be as simple as, well, it's commanded in Scripture, so we ought to do it. But that's not rich. It's almost like you're forced either or. When you get to see the beauty of all that the subject entails, and we're not going to hit every aspect of baptism. We're just going to be talking about one of these aspects. You get to see a richer, if not more subtle way of looking at what is otherwise seen as a commandment. And so, that said, I'm going to give you all a little quiz, all right? So when we're talking about baptism, we're going to use this word called an illusion. And for Phil Barnes' sake, I even put it up as definition form. So Phil, for you. All right. It's an expression designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly. Like, if it keeps raining the way it was earlier this morning... We're going to have to get, build an ark. That's an allusion to what? To the rains. 
that we have, that it's raining a lot. And so I did not mention it raining or anything like this, but if it keeps going like it had been this morning, build our, we get the picture. That's called an illusion, right? And so here are some illusions from an image vantage point, and I want to ask you what passage of Scripture this comes to mind. Children included. Anyone? Good Samaritan. Okay. That picture does not say Good Samaritan, but yet you got the illusion Right? How about this one? David and Goliath. All right? So we, got, we get the concept of what an illusion is. How about this one? Yeah. I was hoping none of you would get it. <laughs> if anything, Publix. <laughs> right? That's the closest you can get if you're going to get an illusion. It's going to be Publix with their produce and what have you. But some of it's fruit of the spirit, someone might have thought. If I'd started with the next one, some of you guys that get real technical would have challenged me, probably even publicly. Get this. Now what passage? Adam and Eve. And yet, what do we say about Genesis chapter 2 and 3? There's, not, there's nothing in the scripture that talks about an apple. But yet, that is the very thing that gives us allusion to Genesis 3. If, if I used bananas at first, you would not have thought Genesis 3. But I used the apple, and it did. See, that's what illusion does. It's the power of an illusion. And so whether it's pictures or words that build pictures, that's what we see here, right? So when we see a person walking someone across the street, and we say something like, he's being a good Samaritan. Well, we know that Good Samaritan was nothing like a person walking another person across the street, but we get the illusion, right? So illusions do just that. They're words, just like images, that they're not explicitly referred to, but implicitly you get the connection. You get the reference. And sometimes illusions are nice, clear-cut, real easy to see, and sometimes illusions are deeper. They're more subtle. And just like Here's the reference that I, I typically refer to. It's in, in Peter's writings. Just like in early, early in the morning when the sun has not yet come up, but you know it's coming up, you look out and you wonder, is that a tree line or are those clouds on the horizon? And as the sun continues to draw closer to breaking of morning day, you're like, okay, I think it may be this, right? It's one or the other or maybe both. And by the time the sun comes up, Everything is clear as day. You get to see, oh, those were trees and clouds. And here's the distinction between them, right? That's the same thing of what illusions do in the very beginning. It's something that may be so subtle, but as you go through the biblical story, things get a little bit clearer, especially if we have the hindsight to start from the beginning and work our way to where we are now in the New Testament it becomes more obvious. So, that said, we're going to look at this subject of baptism and the allusion to it. So, this is very common in scriptures. In fact, in Joel, there's allusions. Lots of them that we looked at in our Bible study this morning. Uh, many of the books give a lot of these allusions. And so, these Bible authors often use these allusions on purpose to bring us back to a reference to something here to make a point here, right? Something in the past to make a point in the present. So in this case, 
in Genesis chapter 3, here is Lot. Lot lifted up, as Moses recounts, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Stop right there before going any further, if you had not already. Now, mind you, this is a day in which Abraham and Lot, their, their herds and their people have gotten so large that they're splitting up. And Abraham says to Lot, Lot, choose whatever you choose from the land, and I'll go the other way. Right? So Lot looks over all the land, and the first allusion is right here, that it was well watered everywhere. The word for Eden is well watered. So if you know your Hebrew, you'll see, oh, okay, there's an allusion. That land was likened to the land of Eden. But it gets more explicit naturally, even though even if it's not perfectly explicit. It was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord. So the garden of the Lord is what would give us this real close allusion to Eden, right? And that's the intention of the author, that that's what it looked like for Lot. So again, there's a purpose for these allusions. It gives us a sense of what it was like in this land that Lot was choosing. It was absolutely fruitful, if I can use that word, right? So that's what we're looking at when we talk about allusions. So here are three major allusions. Some of it are cleaner than others um, within these three that we're going to be looking at when we talk about allusions to baptism, all right? And I'm hoping then you'll get some of the... the the ramifications to why allusions play a big role in Scripture and how it affects you in your reading, study, and hopefully sharing of the gospel, right? So what you will see as we go through um, Genesis chapter 1, particularly in um, the first two points, you're going to see creation, obvious, and you're going to see division, not quite as obvious. And then as the biblical story unfolds further, this last part will become very clear as it is linked to the first two okay so right now you may not be seeing that maybe some of you are already seeing some of these illusions all right first of all let's look at the creation aspect so in genesis chapter one in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and notice what he says in verse two i'm going to slow down read it with you in verse two and i want us to just kind of let this sink in let it marinate with us and see if we can get this illusion and hopefully this will open your eyes to many more allusions in Scripture. It says, the earth was without form and void. So there is an earth, but it's without form, and the earth is unpopulated, right? It's void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So for whatever we know here, we just look at this as fa at face value. Here's a summary. God created the heavens and the earth. And now he begins with some of those details. And one of the things that we learn is that the Spirit of God is present at creation, right? He's hovering over the waters. Now, why would God add that in Scripture? What benefit do we have here, right? Why would God allow for Moses to put these words? He could have just simply said, God created the heavens and the earth and get to day one. But he added that the Spirit of God was present, if you will, and that waters are tied to this text. So hold on to that. Now, when we go through other aspects of 
creation, we're going to see waters involved. Okay, so hold on to that very concept where there's waters and there's creation. So keep that in mind. We could go through a lot of Old Testament passages, and maybe not a lot, but we can go through a number of Old Testament passages. But moving forward real quickly to the New Testament, look at what is said here in Matthew chapter 3, among other texts that could be referred to. So Matthew chapter 3 is the concept of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Okay? Notice what's said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, picking up in verse 16. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered and said, let it be so now. For thus it is fulfilling or thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John the Baptist, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. Now, there are multiple allusions, not illusions, multiple allusions here. One of which you might think in Genesis chapter 9. Right? Remember, there was this dove that came. So there's this picture of the dove. Whatever this is, there's this picture. And the dove is sent from the ark to the land, comes back with that olive branch, but there's this dove picture. There's another picture, and that is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is there present when Jesus comes up out of the waters. And some might say, that's kind of reaching, Mitch. That's reaching a little too far. Hold on. The thing about allusions are that by themselves, you may not get much. But when you take a lot of allusions, you got to start to think. There's, there's something here. These are not just coincidences. These are not just haphazard things, but very important to the uh, narrative of the scriptures. Go on to another passage that you're well familiar with that we talked about. Right? The, the command in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 that we just read a few minutes ago. Right? Peter is done presenting the gospel message. There are thousands whose souls, whose hearts are pricked at hearing this message. And they want to know what they need to do to be saved. So Peter says, I want you to repent and to be baptized for the remission of your sins. And what is going to happen when... You repent and are baptized. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit of God is present at this new beginning of your life with God. Pictures, it's associated with waters. And so now all of a sudden, the words of, of John the Baptist and Jesus in that conversation that Matthew records and Matthew gives us this information is giving us an illusion. And the allusion is not just to Genesis chapter 9. The allusion goes right back to the very beginning where there is the Spirit of God present at this new creation, the very beginning of the heavens and the earth, this new dwelling place. And so creation account, as far as the the whole heavens and the earth, and the creation account as one who is remade in the image of God. That's where the type and the antitype start coming and playing out in Scripture. 
right? So you have passages like John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, and you must be born of water, and what else? Spirit. Just the water and spirit in Genesis 1, Genesis 9, Matthew chapter 3, and again, a number of other passages. Or as Paul says to the church at Corinth, if any man is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Or as Paul says to the church at Rome, when he talks about those who are going to die in the likeness of the death of Jesus, they too shall raise to walk in newness of life just as in Jesus' resurrection. And you get, again, the picture of baptism that does that. There's that picture of death and resurrection where you have this concept of a new life, new creation. I don't want to jump too far ahead of myself in, in what I wanted to say here, but just hold on to that very concept. The Spirit of God is present in new life, in new creation, and that's what you see. That's one illusion that is given. So it's a creation illusion, and if not just creation, it's even a new creation, right? A recreation, and that's where the resurrection comes into play. That's one. Here's another one. This one is not so subtle. This is more difficult, but, but hopefully you'll get to see it. So I want you to go back to Genesis 1 and see if you'll pick up on some of not just the creation itself, but even some theology within creation, okay? So go with me. We're going deep waters here today, guys. So let's look at some of this stuff. Let's see if we can make, make some sense. And hopefully, again, it helps you in your not just Bible reading, but your Bible study, but even more importantly, just being amazed at God's genius in this thing we call the Bible. Right. So notice this. After verse 1 and verse 2, verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And notice what God did. God separated the light from darkness. You go on to um, the following verses where in verse 9, he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And he separates the waters from the dry land, right? So light and day, waters, and in between them in verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate waters from the waters. What is all this separating, separating, separating? Separating light from darkness Day from night, waters from waters, waters from land, right? So again, it's a factual account, what, what you have here. This is the process of creation. But yet, he's choosing these words and repeating this concept of separating things, right? That separation eventually goes beyond fact and has theological importance, if you will, significance, and that's the thing about these illusions. What they can do is they don't have to be so rigid. They can be fluid, and they can expand, and they can grow in how it's being used. And that's exactly what we see over time. In Genesis chapter 6, right, we've already gone to the passage um, that was read um, by Jesse in 1 Peter 3. We're going to go back to that text. We could have added it down here. We're going to do it for the next slide. But notice, in Genesis 6, there was a division that took place in the waters. Not just a creation where there's a factual dividing of light from darkness, day from night, waters from waters, waters from land, but a division. There are those who, through the waters, the flood waters, they were destroyed. 
that happened. It's horrific. That same quote-unquote day, eight souls were saved through the same waters. There was a dividing that took place. And so this concept of division takes on a, another word called judgment. And that's what you see there. We could use Exodus 14, as we were mentioning in our Bible study this morning. Exodus 14, when the waters were divided, the Israelites went across dry ground. And as the Israelites were coming up on the back end of it, and the Israelite army were, I mean, the Egyptian army were coming and following them, the waters closed upon them. The very waters that were separated and brought salvation for the Israelites brought judgment for the Egyptians. And it served as precedent, if you will, for some things that are going on later on in Scripture. And that is why when you read passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's an allusion back to that concept in Exodus 14. When he says, you were all baptized in the baptism of Moses, right? Read the passage. See what it says. And then we get to see here, you know, there's a lot of these references that are being made in Scripture. What's the importance of them? So look at what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first two verses. I do not want you to be aware, unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Right? So there's allusions back to the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, but you get to see more than just that. There's a richness to this. You get to go back and, and see that through this part of their walk with God, literally, if you will, they were being saved as they crossed through those waters while God was judging the Egyptians. Okay? So you have that. You have Titus chapter 3, and Titus actually brings in a lot of different allusions dealing with baptism. I want you to go to the text with me in Titus chapter 3. And I, something that maybe we don't read too often when it comes to baptism, but it's very explicit here. So, get here if I can. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Paul says to Titus, we ourselves were once foolish. Okay? So there was a past that we have. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others or one another. But something happened. There was a threshold that was passed. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. I hope you're beginning to see the flood story once more. Okay? At least how it can play out here. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Right? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And just as in the flood waters... Eight souls were saved by the grace of God, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So too are we finding grace in the eyes of our Lord, and we who have been saved through these waters. And the old man of sin is put away through with death. Isn't that what happens? 
The old man of sin is put to death. He's judged and condemned and worthy of such death. But what is the new man? The one that rises up out of that watery grave we call baptism. What is he? He's a receiver of life and salvation and hope for everlasting life, for eternal life. And so the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to this, you get to, if you are very in tune to these allusions, you get to see these references as it points back to these passages, although they're not explicit. And what we want to do as Bible students, we want it explicit because then it's easy. We're not going to make any mistakes because we can make mistakes with allusions, right? We can like mispronounce that this is tied to that. But I believe these authors want our minds to be able to go back and reflect upon these other passages. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So you've got that concept of creation. You've got a concept of division or judgment. Here's one more. Now, it's not in Genesis chapter 1. It's not even in the first couple of chapters um, that you're going to read of this, right? But the allusions of these first two points will tie this last point to the first two points. And I want you to see it. So remember, they're baptizing into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And if you go back just a couple of chapters to Exodus chapter 12, you read the beginning of Exodus chapter 12, God says to Moses, this day that's starting with the Passover, this is a new beginning for you. This is your new month. Today is like our equivalent of January 1st. This is your new beginning. The reason why he's saying that is because he is going to become their God and they're going to be his people. They're going to agree to a covenant relationship with God. In fact, go to Exodus chapter 19. We'll see this play out a little bit more by the time you get to Exodus 19. So Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to pick up in verse 5 and verse 6. Uh, let's see here. Let me back up to verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians... And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Salvation, right? Judgment on Egypt, salvation for Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, for us New Testament Christians, are we picking up on something? God tells Israel, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. Hold on to that. That should, I see some of you already smiling and going like this. Yeah, I get it. I get it. For them to be a kingdom of priests, they're going to have to go through water. If I can just jump the gun here. And that is where the whole tabernacle system, the whole tabernacle system that goes back to the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and plays out in the book of Revelation. The whole concept of tabernacle is a theme from the very beginning to the very end, right? This is where God and man comes together. This is where God and man have fellowship, okay? That's the way the Bible picture is playing out. And so if these priests who are sinners are going to serve God as priests, they're going to have to be washed. 
And so in this new kingdom, this new beginning, this new nation becomes wholly separated from the rest of the nations unto God. And they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Then here's what God says. In Exodus chapter 29 is the consecration of these priests. So where there's Aaron and his sons, for them to be inaugurated as priests, look at what is taught. So Exodus 29, and we'll go into Exodus 30 from there. Notice the teaching here. Very, very uh, grievous teaching, if you will. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Right? That's what they're going to have to do. And then from that washing, they can continue on, whether it's the putting of, of the garments on and then being able to enter into that tabernacle where they are going to serve God. So that's a picture. None of the Israelites, if they were to do, go through that tent of meeting without that, this picture of authority here, they would die. In fact, even the priests themselves will die if they're not washed. Look at what he says. Chapter 30, this is the daily sacrifices. So just as every day they would burn, have burnt offerings, before they could do those sacrificial offerings, they needed to be, quote unquote, cleansed. So chapter 30, read with me. Beginning in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. And when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die right this is a statute forever for them so being inaugurated in this new office water every day they're going to sacrifice or come into the presence of god if they come near to god water they're going to be washed now if you remember this is this is where we get into some of uh peripheral bible studies when it comes to baptism how many times should we be baptized once, right? But why? There's illusions. There's nothing explicit says you are baptized one time and one time only and no more. But the illusions are going back to how many times did Christ die for us? Once. And what was it in contrast to? The daily sacrifices by the priests. One sacrifice, once and for all, from Christ. I'm not saying you're going to lose your soul if you get baptized more than once. Don't get that in your head. What I'm saying is there's all these illusions that would show you why these individuals were baptized once and once only. Okay? But go on to this picture that they are being cleansed with water so that they can come near to God. Right? That's the picture. That's the illusion that is made through these passages so that when you read passages like, I don't know, 1 Kings or whenever, when, when, excuse me, when Naaman is being baptized and, and you got other Old Testament passages dealing with water issues, you're going to see similarities, whether it's out of a creation account, whether it's going to be out of judgment, or whether it's going to be out of a cleansing. And while those accounts in and of themselves are not what we see as a picture, the ultimate picture of baptism, they're going to be alluded back to by New Testament authors, right? So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Christian, who are we? We are a royal priesthood, and we are a holy nation, playing right off of Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. 
And what do we do as a royal priesthood and royal nation? We have to come near God because that's the whole point, right? The whole point is to have fellowship with God. But before we have fellowship with God, what is it that Jesus has told his disciples, his apostles, to go into all the world doing? Making disciples, teaching them to be baptized, right? Why? For all the things that we were just talking about here. We can say it's a command, and sure enough, that's right. It's commanded in Scripture. But so much more. It's not just a commandment. There's, there's a lot of influences, a lot of richness that we get to see when we study about the priesthood, when we study about the need for them to be washed and cleansed before they come near God. Remember what happened when two of these men came near God without doing his commandment? Yeah, Leviticus 10. They were destroyed. But those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Right? And while they were doing it from an incense standpoint, the law specifically said, if they're not washed, they will die. Every bit is grievous. And so there's significance to it. Now go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read that text. I'm going to finish off um, the sermon from this vantage point. One more time, 1 Peter chapter 3. And maybe um, as bonus, we get to see some context, if you will, of that whole word. Jesus is going and preaching in the prisons kind of thing. So let's see if we can make some sense of that within the context of baptism. Get there. 1 Peter chapter 3. I kind of like my old Bible. (laughs) All right. Here we go. For, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So an allusion back to the cross and back to the reason for the cross. Here's the reason, that he might bring us to God, okay? So we're going to come near to God, right? He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. There's the spirit here. All these key words, right? And then he goes on to add, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when when God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water now he's talking about some kind of thing called prisons and now all of a sudden we're talking about the flood and people being destroyed and that's his point that Jesus through this man named Noah was proclaiming a a, a teaching of repentance for the impending judgment that was to come. You talk about a day of the Lord? A day of the Lord was coming. But they refused him. And they were shackled and bound in judgment because they did not receive the teachings of Noah. And Christ is in this picture. And so you fast forward from then to now And he says, ah, let me tell you how that is connected to what I'm talking about right now. There is an anti-type. There's the real water, if you will, about salvation. So he goes on and says this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Do you see what he did? He went back 
and he tackles everything about creation and the judgment in the flood and also with the cleansing. He deals with all these allusions in a very densely packed few words so that he says, baptism now saves us. Not, not just getting in water and, and getting clean, it's an answer of a good conscience, the one that is saved from impending judgment, the one that is brought through that watery grave to salvation by the mercy and grace of God. That's the picture that Peter is alluding to. Isn't that so much more rich than a simple command? I hope you think so. I really hope you think so. Now, some of you, I get this. We might have to go through the sermon two, three, four, twenty, hundred times. I get it. Everyone's different in their growth. But I'm telling you, the dots are going to connect over time. You're going to see it if you don't see it this morning. And that's okay, by the way. It doesn't take away from, from the fact that these truths are evident. And it's when you see them, you cannot unsee them. Right? And I hope you do see them. But if you don't, no worries. No worries. But here's the richness. And this is why we go through our Bible readings and Bible studies every year. Right here. The New Testament authors, they're, they're, not, they're not idiots, right? They're inspired men of God, but they're not idiots either. And when I say they're not idiots, I mean they're intentional with what they're writing about. And so through the Holy Spirit of God, they used this allusion to the waters back in the Old Testament scriptures, all the way back to the very beginning, to talk about the new creation that we have in Jesus Christ. They do the same thing. They talk about baptism in the idea of a condemnation and a salvation. Just like when in our Bible studies in the morning, we were talking about how there's always impending judgment. But what's on the back end of that judgment for God's people? Hope. For those who call upon the name of the Lord, there's hope. And what is this whole promise that God gives to Abraham? Is it just for Abraham's family? No, for all families of the earth. And that's why as we're studying Joel, we see that. We get to see while the nations are also being judged for what they did against God's people, Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, and Joel. What is it for them? Hope as well. Right? For all call upon him. And of course then, if we're going to come into a covenant relationship with God, and we are going to be a holy people, if we're going to be priests... As scripture refers to us as, we've got to come near to God, holy and blameless. And God provided the means by which we do that. Through baptism. Right? And so that's the richness that we get to see, right? Through all of these illusions. Well, I want you to see the result of them. And this is where we're, we're done with the sermon. How many of you have ever read the Bible where you just, okay, we got um, reading through the Bible in one year. I forgot to read this week. I'm going to catch up. And so, boom, 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 read everything real fast. Come on, raise your hand if you did that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've done it too. Illusions slow us down on purpose. They're supposed to. That's why Bible reading is very intensive. It, it can be draining. You lose some, I mean, you really burn some calories reading the scriptures versus reading whatever novel that you might have that's just real quick reading because all these illusions do that whether it's conscientiously or subconsciously you're going you're going back and always cross-referencing back to other places in scripture 
And it's supposed to slow you down to draw the riches from the well, so to speak, so that you can be quenched, so that you can be lifted up, so that you see just how amazing our God is and the plan that he has for us for all eternity. It allows God's word to marinate, right? And when I say marinate, I mean it from a standpoint that you read this passage and you're like, I'm not quite getting it. Like Bob came up to me this morning and said, you know, after the sermon from last week, Mitch, the law in the Old Testament was we shall not um, boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Can we get more sermons like that? <laughs> like, okay. like those weird ones that doesn't make sense on purpose because after a while, as we marinate, it's not just a command. There's some, for lack of a better way of explaining it, there's theological import behind those commands just as we looked at last week that's the beauty of what god's word does when we get to sit in it and marinate in it and god's word works on our hearts it's a beauty and so it allows us to go deeper than mere commandments mere commandments easy just do it be done with it but so much richer when we get to see the beauty within god's word that's what i hope you'll take away from the sermon is to see some of these beauties so that now when you go back to these Old Testament passages, they have a lot more significance. Now you're not going to fall asleep, yawn through the building of the tabernacle, I hope. (laughs) I hope you get to see, oh, you know these walls? They have cherubim on them. They have palm trees on them. Oh, it goes back to Genesis. They're building pictures in your mind, cross-references or allusions. That's the beauty of them. And then you get to see the significance. That's even the greater aspect of this. So I'm hoping this morning, if you're here and you're just like, all your mind can do is handle commandments, I'll make it clean, make it clear. Just as Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right, who's there, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you and I will be with you to the very end. So that's exactly what they did. And time after time, passage after passage in the book of Acts, you will see those who are calling upon the name of the Lord who are now coming near to God by way of fulfilling the command because they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Right? And they confess him as so. And in coming near to him, turning away from their old man of sin, that's the idea of repentance, right? They come near him. And just before they approach to serve him, In this new walk, they get cleansed with this new beginning, a new life, being free from judgment and brought near for salvation. That's the command. And it's not just a command. It's an invitation for you to pass through the threshold from death to everlasting life. And if that's for you, then you are well invited to come forward. And if you need our prayers, brethren, we're family. So use this opportunity as as we sing this song.